0: It is that noted philosopher Sting who sings, Don't stand so close to me. In horse racing, getting too close could be interpreted as herding. Should getting too close result in a horse being moved down in the order of finish? Plus, are racetracks already hopelessly behind in the race to join up with perhaps soon-to-be-legal sportsbooks? We'll have all that and more on this edition of In the Gate.
1: They're in the gate. They're in the gate. In the gate. They're in the gate. It's a head big finish!
0: This is In the Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at babramsvoice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. NASCAR racers have a saying you hear all the time in that culture. Rubbin' is racing." Rubbing against another car, scraping paint, as it's also called, is considered something of a virtue. Having the steely nerve to risk wrecking your car in order to bump with a competitor. You hope the bump slows the opponent down, but not you, or moves the opponent off the racing line you want so you'll go faster. In horse racing, that kind of bumping also happens. In fact, the two leading Kentucky Derby hopefuls are quite familiar with the practice.
1: McKinsey is the new leader. Castellano hooks Bolt Doro into the clear and he's ranging forward with great purpose at the top of the stretch and Bolt Doro moves up alongside of McKinsey and they're racing tightly. They were brushing in up a stretch. McKinsey fights back underneath Bolt Doro. The San Felipe living up to its billing. A 16th left to go. McKinsey on the inside and Bolt Doro in a spine tingling spectrum. At the great race place, Bolt Doro McKinsey, they hit the line. McKinsey beats Bolt Doro in a photo. The stewards have disqualified McKinsey. The top two placings are reversed, and number one Bolt Doro earns the San Felipe Stakes victory via DQ.
0: The stewards, horse racing's referees, had to figure out not just who initiated the bumping, but why. Remember, Horses are herd animals, and in the herd, there is a pecking order. Only one can be the dominant male. The rest become followers. What horsemen call herding means purposely moving a horse inward or outward to get close to a competitor so they can sort out that pecking order amongst themselves. Herding is not typically considered a virtue in this world the way rubbing and racing or scraping paint is in NASCAR. The question is, what actually are the rules in horse racing regarding herding, and how, if at all, does that apply to what happened in the San Felipe, and what do these rules mean going forward? To discuss this, we welcome in a pair of stewards from different parts of the country that will help us figure this out. We start with Eddie Arroyo, chief state steward for the Illinois Racing Board, as well as Stan Boker, veteran steward now working primarily in Arkansas. Thank you, gentlemen, both so much. I want to start with Mr. Arroyo. Explain for us, in your own words, what herding is and how racing stewards view it.
2: Well, herding is not a word that we have in our rule book, so we don't really uh, use it as herding. We use it as either jostling or intimidating intimidation. So I would tell you that... Uh, whether it's hurting, intimidation, or jostling, uh, if there is interference, and in it requires an inquiry or a, a look at, further look at the incident. So I did get a chance to look at that race. I didn't get a real good view. Obviously, there were the two incidents. Uh, the, the one at the top of the stretch, it was very difficult to ascertain who did what to whom <laughs> or who instigated it. But the second one is very obvious that the inside horse comes out and physically pushes the other horse out at least two to three paths wide.
0: Mr. Boker, how do you view the outcome of the San Felipe in light of what you view herding to be?
3: Well, I think Eddie hit it on the head by saying that there there is no rule that uh, speaks to herding precisely. We talk about impeding, we talk about jostling, we, you know, th- those types of things. And, but there's there's also a twofold thing in most jurisdictions. Now every jurisdiction can be a little different, but there are twofold things in most jurisdictions. The first thing that stewards have to look at is whether or not a foul occurred. Then you have to look at the second part of that is did it affect the outcome of the race? Now some jurisdictions still have a foul as a foul as a foul, but it's, it's very rare now because most people have gone to the the outcome of the race. Uh, part of that. So th- it's really two things. So you're lo- you're looking at, uh, let's talk about the two incidents for, that we're talking about here today. At at the top of the stretch, uh, w- was there a foul? And my, in my opinion, the, yes, there probably was a foul there. Uh, and I'm, I'm saying probably because I'm not there to, to really see that what's happened. All I'm doing is looking at, at a film that's not really that good either, but but anyway, let, let's assume for a minute that there was a foul. The second part of that is, did it affect the outcome of the race? And I think that the stewards felt that you couldn't put the blame on either either horse as causing the, the interference, even though there was interference. So the, the determination was made not to do anything about that one. So then you're going on down. And by the way, just FYI, everybody, you, you adjudicate fouls in the order that they happen. So the first thing that happened was the, t- the thing at the top of the stretch. The second thing that happened was that I think it was around 16th pole or right, right around that, where the horse that Mike Smith was on came out and bumped the other horse, as, as Eddie said, he bumped him out a couple of paths, and that that was the reason that they felt those, those horses were head and head but that, that gave that horse that won an, an advantage, and they reversed the, the order of finish. So so that's why it happened. And the other thing that you, you have to understand is that people that have a vested interest in the race, and that could be horse players, it can be owners, it can be trainers, it can be jockeys that have vested interest in the race. They only look at things one way, whereas the stewards are, are very much independent, and, and they're they're looking at, at the entire incident that happens. Sometimes incidents will happen leading up to the actual bumping that goes on. You know, it, you can see it materializing ahead of time, so you have to go back and, and look at more of the race than just that incident itself. You have to look and see how, how it evolved, how it happened. I'm not one to second-guess other stewards because I'm not there. But the, the, the stewards that were there, I know, were unanimous in their uh, decision to disqualify the horse. So they, they certainly felt it affected the outcome of the race.
0: And to be fair, we're not here to second-guess them either. We're here just to kind of get a larger discussion on the topic Out into the open And it's interesting Mr. Boker You talked about a couple of factors That go into that determination I'm going to throw one more at both of you Because this is the second time In the short career of McKinsey That we've seen him get into it With competitors in a race
1: and there goes McKinsey. McKinsey now giving his cue but instilled regard is right up to the task on his outside and a big move from the back of the pack for instilled regard. He swept on up to poke a nose in front. McKinsey has to step on the gas to keep going with him. Instilled regard McKinsey now these two step into it with Solomini still a major player on the outside. Three of them coming down the lane McKinsey. McKinsey just the leader. Instilled regard between runners. Solomini there on the Outside a three way driving finish in the fraternity. McKenzie, Solomini, in still regard. Solomini, Solomini wins the Los Alamitos cash call fraternity. McKenzie and still regard battling second and third. A long way to the others, ladies and gentlemen. Your attention, please. There has been a disqualification. The stewards have ruled that number three, Solomini, has been disqualified from first and placed third for causing interference to number one, instilled regard in the stretch. The new order of finish, first five, McKinsey, second one, instilled regard, third three, Solomini.
0: Now, the horse can't obviously speak about his view of the world as, you know, horses kind of sort out who's the dominant male in the herd but you might be starting to understand it by his actions here. How do you factor in a horse's demeanor if you have ongoing evidence of it when you judge these races? Let's start with Mr. Arroyo.
2: Well, I don't know that I would take account into a horse's demeanor. I think the jockey should be aware, and his connections should be aware that this horse has a tendency to do this kind of things in a race. So he's the pilot because your car has a misalignment and it puts to the left or to the right, that means you as the pilot or the driver have to keep that, ho- that your car in your lane the same as the as jockey does to have to do the same thing for a racehorse. So that would really factor into the jockey's responsibility to keep that horse straight. Yes, we've had it in the past of many horses that have tendencies to either crowd or, or bump other horses or even bite other horses. But uh, that's that is the if a horse or jockey interferes with the progress of another horse, that might be a case for a disqualification.
3: Well, I think, I think he's, he's exactly right. And I think it's important for horse players to, in particular to know, and we usually go over this with, with the jockeys before the uh, race meet starts, but just because a horse bumps another horse does not necessarily mean the horse is going to get taken down or that the jockey is going to get dazed. Nor conversely, if a, if a horse doesn't uh, bump a horse, that doesn't mean he's not going to get disqualified or the jockey's not going to get days. So, so you have to keep that in mind that that uh, so, sometimes a bump can can affect a, a, the outcome of a race. Sometimes it can't. So, and sometimes it's a, more of a brush than it is a bump, and you have to look at that as as well. But Eddie's right. If you if a, if a horse has a tendency to do certain things. Then the jockey and/or trainers have to do what they can to correct that because it, you're still not allowed to, you know, do much out, outside of your lane. The other thing is important to, to know is what does it mean to be clear? A lot of people think that that you only have to be a length ahead to be clear. Well, you really have to be a little more than a length ahead because a horse's legs, are, front legs, are extended and the back legs get extended, so they're really it's more more than a length sometimes. You're looking for as, your, as a steward to to decide whether a horse is clear or not.
0: Our guests are Eddie Arroyo, chief state steward for the Illinois Racing Board, and Stan Boker, a longtime steward now working primarily in Arkansas at Oaklawn Park. Now you said that the rules are not quite the same in judging this state to state, and so Kathy Omira of the Racetrack Officials Accreditation Program was nice enough to send us the rules in this case for each and every state. And if you look at those rules, which we did, you'll see that four of those states, including Kentucky and New York, but not including California, where the San Felipe was run, use the word intimidation, which you used earlier, when it comes to one horse interfering with another. So New York is one that does. But here's an instance where what seems like an obvious example of hurting or intimidation took place. It was last year's coaching club American Oaks at Saratoga. The outside horse and eventual winner Abel Tasman moves inward to take on Elate.
1: Abel Tasman in front, off the turn. Elate is coming up the rail. Here comes Elate, through on the inside to challenge Abel Tasman. Abel Tasman and Elate come past the 16th pole. Abel Tasman, Elate giving her a run for her money as they hit the wire. Abel Tasman has won it by a hand.
0: They never quite bump, I don't think, but Abel Tasman moved way down toward the rail and really crowded elate, but the result was allowed to stand. Abel Tasman, incidentally, was ridden by Mike Smith, who's also the jockey of McKinsey. So, Mr. Boker, how do you view that race in light of what we said about the idea of interfering or intimidation or hurting?
3: Well, it goes back to the second part of, of what I we said a little bit ago, and that, and that is, did it affect the outcome of the race? And without looking at that again, I don't remember that specific race, but that's one of the questions the stewards have to look at, is to whether or not it affected the outcome of the race.
2: Stan was correct, and this is what we teach in all our classes, is not whether you should take a horse down, but the mechanics of, of adjudicating an, an incident in the race. So, everybody kind of does it the same way. And the first thing is you, you determine whether well, there was an incident in the race that married an inquiry. And if so, then if there was an incident in the race, did it affect, after you identify the horses involved, did it affect the horse's placing? And if it affected the horse's placing, most likely you would take action. And in your opinion, it did not, then you would not.
3: But the other part of that is it doesn't necessarily mean that the jockey's not going to get dazed. You know, maybe it didn't affect the outcome of the race, but if the stewards determined that the jockey in question was careless, he could still get days in spite of the fact that there was no disqualification.
0: Now, here's the thing. With the rules as they go from state to state, all right, neither Illinois nor Indiana use the word intimidation in any manner. In five different states the word intimidate is used but only applying to a horse weaving as opposed to a horse moving in one direction or out in one other direction in order to go shoulder to shoulder with an opponent in maryland all it says is a horse may not carry another horse in or out but it doesn't say anything about a horse coming down on another you know when when let's say the inside horse is on the rail and the outside horse comes down there and crowds the horse, doesn't necessarily touch the other one, but crowds. Certainly could be interpreted as hurting. So there are different rules all over the place. So when you, who try to teach, or Kathy O'Meara at Rope tries to teach, how can you really teach when the rules are so different state to state? Well, it, the,
2: the wording is different. The meaning of what the rule is saying is almost the same, identical all across the country. So you use the word "herding," which we don't use. We even in crossing in front of another horse without sufficient clearance. Others, uh, other states use different language. but the the intent of that rule is basically the same.
3: We're trying to teach consistency uh, when we're teaching the uh, you know the stewards that. To- What we're trying to do is is be consistent in in the calls, and uh, Eddie's right. Sometimes the wording is a little different, but the intent of of the rule is is the same, and and that's that's what we try to teach everybody.
0: Well, I don't know whether we've cleared this up for horse players and viewers, but we've certainly tried. (laughs) So Eddie Arroyo of (laughs) Illinois, Stan Boker of Arkansas, thank you both so much for helping us shed light on this topic. Thank you. All right. Thank you.
3: Thank you very much.
0: We're going to take a short break here on In the Gate, but when we come back, the Supreme Court has not yet even voted on whether to repeal the PASPA Act, but our racetracks already hopelessly behind in the race to join up with perhaps soon-to-be-legal sportsbooks? We'll get into that when we come back. Welcome back to the In The Gate podcast. In 2014, there were almost a 1,000 casinos in operation in the United States. More than half of those, over 500, were not Native American tribal casinos. They were commercial ones. That's according to the American Gaming Association. Of those 500, you know how many exist at racetracks? Somewhere around 40. That means the other 460 or so non-Native American casinos are not aligned with tracks. And so that percentage of casino money that could be going into purses but isn't? Well, that's a lot of money. Now, sometime later this spring or early summer, the Supreme Court of the United States is likely to issue a ruling on the legality of sports betting. It seems as though at least a partial repeal of the ban on sports betting is imminent. Right now, it's only allowed in a very few places, Las Vegas being the most notable. Well, you would think that racetracks would be salivating to try to get involved and get a piece of the action. So, how many racetracks are set up to capitalize on this potentially seismic change to the gaming landscape? 1. Monmouth Park in New Jersey Monmouth already has a sports bar built by British bookmaker William Hill. Their hope is that the bar will eventually become a sports book if the Supreme Court rules in New Jersey's favor. What does legalized sports betting and the slow moving of racetracks to adjust mean for the future of racing? For that, let's bring in the CEO of William Hill's U.S. operations, Joe Asher, who joins us here on In The Gate. With William Hill, you had opened three sports books in Nevada, where they're legal, six years ago. What made you want to join up with Monmouth Park now?
4: Well, we uh, were joined up with Monmouth Park several years ago when I'd uh, read of Dennis Drazen's efforts to get sports betting going in New Jersey. And I reached out to him, met him. And we wound up striking a deal, uh, I think it was about three years ago or so, maybe four. And we you know, built out the sports book. We were the sponsor of the Haskell for a uh, period of time, which uh, was fortuitous because American Pharoah's first start after winning the Triple Crown was in the William Hill Haskell. And there's a great oversized Photo of that on the wall in our office. <laughs> and, you know, look, we w- I've certainly always believed that uh, sports betting at Monmouth Park was inevitable and never really had a prediction on how long that was going to take, but, you know, wanted to make sure that when it did happen that William Hill was there. And, you know, it's been a uh, terrific partnership with Dennis. There is no person probably more responsible for the sports betting efforts in New Jersey, really, than Dennis. I mean, it would be, you know, Dennis, Senator Lesniak, and Governor Christie, who got the ball to where it is.
0: It used to be that casino operators found it valuable to join up with a racetrack because the track had been legally designated a place to conduct gambling, and it made for an easier entree for the casino. Now, if sports betting is legalized, how likely is it that betting shops would be able to set up anywhere on any street corner, like in the U.K., or would individual states set specific places where it would be allowed, like at racetracks, do you think?
4: Well, certainly one would think in the early states, at least in the U.S., sports books will likely be uh, within existing gaming licensees. In some states, that'll be casinos. Some states, uh, like New Jersey, it'll be uh, casinos and racetracks. And, you know, it'll just vary state by state. I do not see the freestanding betting shop like you see in the UK. I don't think that is something that I envision in the U.S.
0: You mentioned in a recent presentation on this subject that it would be important to be involved in the legislative process of who and how such licenses would be awarded. In your experience, how many tracks are currently involved in this process like Monmouth Park?
4: Uh, honestly, I don't know, have no basis or no way to know that. But I do know that, you know, when I was testifying in Albany uh, a few weeks ago, Chris Kay, who's the head of NIRA, was also on the agenda. So, you know, there's one. But, you know, beyond that, I couldn't give you a list.
0: We're chatting here on In The Gate with Joe Asher, CEO of the U.S. Operations for British bookmaker William Hill. Now, as you know, the racing world has a culture, a vernacular, all its own, separate from stick and ball sports, which are much more commonly known by the average sports fan. So what do you, with William Hill, try to encourage the average sports gambler, whatever that even means, to migrate over to horse racing?
4: You know, look, we, we offer pair mutual wagering in a number of our properties in Nevada, and then we book the major horse racing uh, events at other properties. We uh, we have a Derby future book, which is up now, of course, and you can bet on any number of horses to win the Derby. Sometimes we do better on it than, than other times. The year that I'll have another one, we wound up paying out Doug O'Neill a lot of money because he had bet the horse uh, <laughs> early and, and kept betting it and betting it and betting it, but I unfortunately didn't <laughs> didn't follow him to the window. So, you know, look, Derby futures are popular. You know, we'll put up Breeders' Cup futures as well. And, you know, look, racing, you know, the five big days a year, you do well at the Triple Crown and two days of Breeders' Cup. You know, the other 360-year challenge, perhaps outside the marquee meets of, uh, you know, of Del Mar and Saratoga. So I'm out in Del Mar every, uh, every summer when I lived on the East Coast. I used to go to Saratoga, but... You know, once you get out west and start going to Del Mar, it's tough to leave. But, you know, look, it's a real challenge day in and day out with horse racing.
0: Do you have any kind of data that tracks the effect, let's say, of commingling thoroughbred betting with betting on other sports?
4: I don't have any concrete day before you. I mean, the place that immediately jumps into my mind is Delaware Park, where you can bet parlays on NFL football through the state lottery. And, uh, you know, that's done in the same general area as the betting on the horses as you're facing the track and facing the betting windows. On the left is where you bet football and on the right is where you bet the horses. You know, they certainly coexist very easily. Hard to give you numbers for the crossover or, you know, whether people, you know, bet horses because, you know, sports are made available. Clearly, you know, they'll bet, as I say, the horse futures and, And the other types of bets that can be offered. And on the major events is is when you certainly see the most crossover.
0: I mean, the bottom line is here you know, for the most part, horse racing is the only form of legal sports betting in the United States as of this moment. If and when sports betting becomes legally allowed, is it a good or bad thing for horse racing?
4: Well, I certainly don't see how it's a bad thing. I mean, you know, sports betting is going on all over the country today, except outside Nevada, it's largely. Illegal, unregulated, untaxed, with no benefit other than the uh, you know the criminals who operate it. So I don't see how anybody could suggest it's bad. On the is it good category, I think it certainly to the extent that racetracks uh, get a license to offer sports betting, like one would expect Monmouth Park to do, then of course it's a very good thing. But it's going to be up to individual states to decide who's going to get the licenses and that will determine how much of a positive it can be for the racing industry.
0: Well, we're glad to get a little bit of perspective in this calm before what is probably going to be a tumultuous storm this summer when that ruling comes down. Joe Asher of William Hill, thank you so much for a few minutes, and I look forward to hearing a lot more about this topic in the next few months. Nice being with you. Our thanks to Joe Asher, to Eddie Arroyo, and to Stan Bowker. One of the reasons horse racing has not been as successful as many in the sport would like it to be is that so few racing people understand the sporting landscape, they cannot see the forest for the trees. How else can you explain the Breeders' Cup considering moving the Classic and Juvenile races? They would have happened sometime in early to mid-December, while the others would keep their early November spaces. It's hard enough to garner any attention in the fall against a full schedule of college football games, but then to disembody the main event of your show is firing your best shot with wayward aim. I could see moving all of Breeders' Cup weekend back to December, when college football's regular season is done, but until these racing people extract their heads from their backsides, it won't matter because the battle will never be won.